is Bloomberg Surveillance. I think the currency is beginning to shift its focus from nominal short-term interest rate differentials to real short-term interest rate differentials. If we're going to start to assess what we think is going to happen in the emerging world, that's critical for the global economy. The story starts and ends in what happens in China. We're in a modest growth environment. Growth is brittle and below par, but we are not facing a significant risk of recession anytime soon. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance, Michael McKee and Tom Keene. We welcome all of you to Bloomberg Surveillance on economics, finance, investment, on international relations. We'll do that with David Blanchflower in a moment. Bloomberg Surveillance this morning, this Monday, is always brought to you by Cone Resnick Accounting Tax Advisory Regulatory Changes can impact your business. See how the experts at Cone Resnick can help you navigate these complexities. Find out more at ConeResnick.com. Michael McKee, away for a week. He's back. Mike, it was a central bank derby last week, it almost seemed. And I thought one of the great insights was John Williams disagreeing with James Bullard about the dot charts. Did you read about the dot charts on your one week? I did. So did uh, there, I actually was um, at dinner with a research director for one of the regional Federal Reserve banks who noted uh, the frustration within the Federal Reserve at the inability of investors to understand what the dot charts are supposed to tell you, uh, which was Bullard's argument. He also noted that um, investors don't tend to get uh, the Atlanta Fed GDP now number correct. They think it's a forecast rather than a data point um, at, at any point in time. And uh, and they said, you know, we, we try to be transparent and provide all this information, and people just don't understand what we're doing. Very good. Let us begin a discussion, and within the enthusiasm of the moment we're in, entering the second quarter, let me garner a single sentence. A worker who is employed in an area of high unemployment earns less than the exact same individual working in a region with low joblessness. This was the wage curve. It was invented by one Andrew Oswald and a guy named David Blanchflower. This is right after Ricardo that they did this. And Danny Blanchflower joins us now from Dartmouth. Uh, Professor, if you wrote your classic The Wage Curve Now, how would it be different? The big difference would be that prior to 2008, the way we assumed you could measure labor market slack was to simply look at the unemployment rate, and all the other labor market measures moved with it. Since 2008, um, many policymakers and many commentators have assumed that relationship continued, but it turns out that the unemployment rate today underestimates the extent to which there's labor market slack. So the wage curve fits very well, has a long flat part, but you need to rewrite it in labor market slack space, you know, that rather than just the unemployment rate, there's the underemployed, and there's all these people who are out of the labor force, who this month we saw coming back as we expected, which pushes up the unemployment rate, it turns out. So there's lots of labor market slack, just as we assumed that there mm-hmm. would be, and that's why there's essentially no, no wage pressure because the U.S. economy is a very long way away from full employment. Do, do policymakers, and particularly monetary authorities, whatever nation they're in, should they worry about the quote-unquote underemployed 
or is that asking too much of them? Well, I don't think it's asking too much of them. Um, many of us have been writing about it for quite a long time. In almost every country now, what we see is that people who are in jobs would actually like to have more hours than they can get. There, there are hours constraints. Um, we have some indicators of it in the United States, which is this measure called part-time for economic reasons. But actually, we know that uh, there's lots of full-time people as well who'd like to have more hours. And the fact that these folks are underemployed keeps wage pressure down. And as demand for workers rises, firms can increase the number of hours that their workers have rather than pull from the unemployment stock. And the interesting thing about this is that the scale of underemployment basically was zero between 2000 and 2008. Um, but now that slack still exists on top of the unemployment. Define for me what... Um a long way from full employment means. I mean, we were at 10% unemployment at the height of the recession. We're now at 5%. Uh, how much further do you have to go to take up Danny Blanchflower's slack? Well, uh, it's obviously it's obviously pretty hard to exactly work that out. Um, my, my assumption is probably we're more like 7 7.5% unemployment. And it will take perhaps, um, on the best-case scenario, another 18 months or so of 200,000 a month in job, um, in, in non-farm payroll raises before we see anything like a big jump in wage, wage growth that you'd see at full employment. It's hard to know. That's why the Fed says they're following the data. But the level of slack is, is still quite considerable, and I think it's much more considerable than most other people think, not least because of the number of young people who've left the labor force and will start to come back as the economy continues to grow and moves towards full employment. So my, my guess is we're probably around seven probably now, a couple of percentage points, but the problem is that as these folks come back to the labor, from the, into the labor force, as we saw on Friday, that actually can raise the unemployment rate. How do we have um, so, so many job openings, as suggested by the JOLTS numbers, when we have so many under- and unemployed people out of the labor force? Well, there's, all, there's always been an issue of matching workers to, to jobs. I wouldn't say that there are actually so many. I mean, go back to my point where, um, where there's underemployment. Workers are in jobs. They're matched to jobs that firms have but they would like 38 hours a week, and their employers offer them 24. So there's an issue. I mean, the issue is partly to do with matching of workers to jobs, but actually workers are constrained by the lack of jobs and the lack of hours. Well, if, if uh, there is a, a mismatch out there, uh, does that change as more young people with better training come into the labor force, or does this... Uh, slow down because we, we don't have the right people to take up these jobs. I mean, there well, are many, I, many job yeah. openings. Right. Well, Mike, if it was true that there were lots of job openings and there weren't enough people out there, there would be an obvious prediction, which is, well, there ought to be a big rise in wage growth because if that was true, the way that firms would get the workers that they needed would be to raise wages and attract them from somewhere else. And that's not true. And the puzzle for anybody who makes that claim that we're close to full employment or there's lots of jobs out there really and people aren't filling right. them, if that was the case, 
then wait, and, that, and if you, it was also true that the long-term unemployed didn't count, the problem with all of those stories is that would then generate a big wage push, which we have not seen. So that doesn't seem to, right. to really be a winning argument. Danny, I want to come back and talk about this, but, but let's get it started now. The Wall Street Journal has four killer charts today on trade. One of them, folks, I've been using on Bloomberg Surveillance Television, which is just simply global exports, which is a right. general statement is flatlined. I don't want to make it too gloomy. Right. The chart of foreign direct investment inflows, when you sum it all up worldwide, is breathtaking. I mean, we're literally getting back to where we were 15 years ago. Why did that happen? Well, obviously, a great question. Um, my, my fear, and I have been gave a speech last week on this, my fear is, once again, people underestimated the impact of, the, of a slowing of a major economy in the world. In 2006, 7, 8, we underestimated the, the impact of the U.S. slowing. And here we have um, a, a rapid slowing in China. I mean, I think that's the first thing. And then now global uncertainty. But um, certainly it appears that global trade is declining. I mean, my, my favorite old chart from 2008 is the chart of the Baltic Dry uh, and the cost of renting Cape-sized vessels, which has collapsed through the floor, but it appears around the world that um, shipping has in, been in decline, air freight's declined, rail freight's declined, yeah. the cost of shipping um, um, containers has collapsed. So global trade appears to have fallen, and, and Chinese export appears to have fallen. So a lot of this, I think, has to do with um, the rapid decline in, in China. And essentially, that's what Ye Janet Yellen talked about, the fear of well, global slowing and its impact on the United States. And that was really one of the themes last week, folks, is interview and meeting on and off the mic uh, with all sorts of people really focused back to a view of EM and led by China. David Blanchflower is with Dartmouth College. We will continue our discussion. They're not in the, uh, here. in the NCAA. Finals. No, no. They're, Yale did better than good. Come on. Yale, Yale led Yale the did charge well, for, uh, uh, for, for the Ivy League. Those um, are the highest. I, I have to do a surveillance correction, though. I... I, 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 I Villanova wins, that's great, but uh, North Carolina is the, my last remaining team in the bracket. So oh, I, I have a rooting interest way. in that. Yes, um, I'm the same one. You know, as well. Who, best team wins, let's hope so. Futures up four, Dow futures up 12. Uh, the yen, 111.55, stronger yen. That bears watching as we begin the week. Really have seen that for some time uh, recently. West Texas, 36.96. Oil up this morning. All right, let's check in with Michael Barr now and get the latest world and national headlines. Michael. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Officials say a wave of suicide attacks swept across Iraq today, killing at least 29 people. The deadliest attack happened about 200 miles southeast of Baghdad. A suicide bomber blew himself up inside a restaurant that is frequented by Shiite paramilitary militia fighters. A boat with more than 130 refugees who fled to Greece has returned them to Turkey. It's part of a European Union deal to stem migration to Europe. Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump is calling on Ohio Governor John Kasich to quit the race. Trump says the nomination will be without will be his without Kasich, who has no chance of winning the nomination. Trump and Ted Cruz are in a tight race in Wisconsin. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists. In more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom. Michael, thanks so much. Again, I mentioned yen 111.54. We'll have to see if that can push ever stronger. A lot of doubt about that. Euro 113.80. 
Next, David Blanche Flower on stimulus, on austerity. Michael McKee and Tom Keene, Bloomberg Surveillance. The news update brought to you by Mercedes-Benz. Outstanding offers are in full bloom at your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealers. Take advantage of limited-time leasing and finance programs on select models this spring season. Visit MBUSA.com for details today. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. U.S. stock index futures are higher this morning. Let's go to the first word breaking news desk for today's morning call. And here's Vince Signorella. Good morning, Vince. Good morning, Karen. As you say, U.S. futures are higher. Dow's up seven. S&P up two. NASDAQ's up four and a half. The U.S. 10-year yield is at 1.77%. Oil prices are a bit higher. WTI crude, 36.97, up 18 cents. Brent up 12 cents at 38.79. On the economic front, 945 March New York ISM at 10, durable goods, CapEx orders, and shipments. Boston Fed President Rosengren speaks at 930, and Reserve Bank President of Minneapolis Kashkari holds a too-big-to-fail conference at 7. In some of today's top news, Alaska Air to buy British Virgin America for $57 a share cash, 47% premium. Bats Global Markets sets an IPO at 11.2 million shares, priced at between $17 and $19 a share. Live from the First Word Breaking News Desk, I'm Vincent Signorella. Karen? All right, thanks, Vince. And to hear live breaking news over your Bloomberg, type Squawk Go on your terminal. That's S-Q-U-A-W-K Go. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thanks so much. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, Bloomberg Surveillance this Monday. Brought to you by Invesco. Factor-based strategies can help investors focus on high-quality, low-volatility, and more. Learn more at Invesco.com slash high-conviction. Michael McKee and Tom Gee. Mike, we should say who David Blanchflower is. We talked earlier about his iconic the wage curve, but he, he, besides his daughters, kept the GDP of the United Kingdom afloat for like three years with various marriages. Yes. In the United Kingdom. I mean, he was with the Bank of England for a he while. He was uh, on the Monetary Policy yeah. Committee and then uh, a longtime commentator in U.K. newspapers. Uh, you were last with The Independent, which has breathed its last as a print institution. Are you still online with The uh, with the Independent, uh, uh, Danny? No. No, we separated over uh, a disagreement over the support of The Independent of the of the government in last, last May. <laughs> interesting, over opinion. There's meant to be an independent newspaper, which I, which I sort of, <laughs> anyway, let's move on from that. <laughs> let's move on from that. Yeah, all right, let's, let's move on to this, uh, the idea, to, to go along with the idea of slacking the labor market and right. uh, the fact that wages aren't rising as much. Jan Arando, very interesting write-up on the Bloomberg today, and I urge everybody to look at this uh, story. It actually came out over the weekend. Um, Wage growth, according to a new study published by the San Francisco Fed, Mary Daly, the associate director of research there, suggests that our uh, the, the numbers we look at in terms of wage growth are not the best, I don't want to say inaccurate, but not the best measures of wage growth because the composition of the labor market has changed during the Great Recession, disproportionately workers uh, at the lower end of the wage scale were fired, and now they come back, and as they are added in, their lower wages drag down wage growth, and then we have higher wage baby boomers retiring now, 
and that is also a drag on wage growth. And according to the different kinds of indicators she looks at, like the wage growth number from the Atlanta Fed, wages are growing at 3.2%. So maybe we are seeing some pressure that is not being properly measured. Well, the people who need to see wage rises um, have, have jumped to all kinds of excuses. The excuses, first of all, were... Um, that wage growth was going to come, it was a lagging indicator, it was really going to come. Um, I don't buy that analysis, actually. Um, it appears it's very hard, actually, to see many places around the world where workers are making 3%. I mean, the issue is who's actually making that. So if you look at things like, well, let's just go to um, um, production and non-supervisory workers, their wage growth is around 2 um, I mean, you can fiddle around with the data and try and pretend under some assumptions that it's higher than it actually is. But the question is, where are these people who are making 3 and 4% wage growth? I don't see them. Nobody else sees them. Um, and some people need to fiddle around with the data, but I just don't buy that. The data looks to be consistent around the world with relatively flat wage growth. I, I, I look at it, and I look at the movements, uh, Professor, and... More than anything, what I see is a bimodal, trimodal America or a bimodal, trimodal world for that matter. Can we trust the numbers and can policymakers use an all-in macro analysis or is that a quaint thing for another time? Well, I think it is quite quaint. I mean, Mike's right in the sense that you can look at different parts of the distribution and you can see different bits of wage growth. Let me give you an example. The latest data in the UK from a thing called the Labour Force Survey has actually got the mean growth rate of, of two and the median growth rate of zero. And obviously, I mean, it's right in the sense that um, different bits of the distribution are impacted, um, but it certainly does turn out that uh, it's one simple measure may not well be enough, but certainly there are issues about people get paid. It certainly appears around the globe that the top decile and maybe even the top percentile have done particularly well. The question is what's happened to the lowest half of the distribution? So there certainly are distributional effects. But again, I say around the world, so where are all these people that supposedly are making these huge wage growth? I don't know of any. Right. It's very hard to see any. The other thing perhaps to go and look at is if you look at union wage settlements, we don't see that in union wage settlements either. So I don't really buy the fiddle with the data and I can try and get an answer that's bigger kind of response. Oh, we're going to have to leave it there. David Blanchfire, thank you so much with Dartmouth College uh, this morning. I could go on, Mike, for like two hours. Folks, I did a, a lecture once with Professor Blanchflower at Dartmouth, and, and Mike, it was riveting. It was just riveting how the students, two things in, in, intrigued me. The students listened to what he had to say within the international macro continuum. It wasn't just all the usual you know, textbook boilerplate. And the other thing, Mike, that was frightening was how smart the students' questions were, how informed they were, because they listened to Bloomberg surveillance every morning. Up exactly. At That's why. I'm kidding. But you, you need it was a great to, pleasure. Yeah, you need to listen to this program every day, and you'll, be, you'll pass your classes. A lot going on. What an end of the first quarter. Mike, the, the most amazing thing to me is we begin the second quarter is I believe we end it with Brexit. I mean, you know, granted, it's a long ways away. It's 85 days away or whatever. 
Yeah. But it is going to be a wild end of June this year. Well, uh, throw in the fact that you've got a Fed meeting uh, at the end of June, and you've yeah. got Greek debt uh, payments due. So Mike and I are taking off all of May. That's the answer. Because we're this not is, getting out of here in June. This is Bloomberg surveillance. Time now for the With All Due Respect highlight brought to you by Land Rover. If it's in your nature to cast off the everyday and seek adventure, the Discovery Sport was built to help your search. Visit LandRoverTriState.com or call 1-800-FIND-4WD for details. Land Rover, above and beyond.